We're actually trying to keep going through this series we've been doing about uh, Jesus. And we've been talking about Jesus for the last uh, little while. Uh, and the point of this, as Jesus, as Jesus, as Jay <laughs> made clear a couple, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip, as Jay made clear a couple weeks ago, uh, is that we're trying to discern the shape of this centered set theology that we're hoping to hold to uh, with this community, right? We, we said that we're trying to be defined by the core thing that we're orienting ourselves towards rather than by boundaries that define who is in and who's out, right? That's what being centered set is about um, rather than bounded set. But it's also complicated, right? And we talked about this a few weeks ago because the center can very quickly become just an empty signifier, right? Or a black hole or an everything bagel, right? That not only prevents us from understanding what our community is meant for, but it also invites us to build silent, unspoken boundaries instead, right? If we lose track of what's at the center uh, in kind of a haze of indeterminacy, you know, we may find that the very us versus them mentality that we're trying to avoid uh, will arise of its own accord, right? Under the pressure of the wider culture in which we find ourselves, right? We live in a culture that's very much about us or them polarization. And if we don't have a real clear idea of what it is that we're tr trying to keep our eyes focused on, then kind of just the default, we just will fall back into the default, which is us versus them. So these last three talks have been all about looking at one aspect of the center we've chosen for ourselves, and that's Jesus as he lives out his relationships to those around him. So a few weeks ago, last month, I think, Ruth talked about the widest circle around Jesus, and that was the crowds, right? The people that he passed by, the folks that we don't hear very much about, um, but who he healed and he taught and he interacted with. And the big takeaway from that was that Jesus says yes to people, right? His heart moves him towards people in service and love, and he invites us to follow him in this. And then Jay uh, pulled it in a little bit to talk about Jesus and his friends. Jesus saw everyone, as far as we can tell, as a kind of pre-friend, right? Of one sort or another. And he was constantly on the lookout for friends. When we're trying to understand what the love of Jesus looks like, he tells us straight. He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus sees us as his friends. Today, we're going to be talking about the other group of people who seem to kind of follow Jesus around when we look at his life as recorded in the Gospels. In fact, they follow him right to the end. And actually, they sort of help to hurry that end along. You know, this is Jesus and his enemies. Well, it feels sort of weird saying enemies, right, alongside the name of Jesus. Did Jesus have enemies even, right? Could he have enemies? I was saying to Hillary earlier, I had a very difficult time putting this talk together. Um, and I think the reason is that I've always thought of myself, told my family, in fact, as they know here, um, that I don't have any enemies. Right? I'm, I'm serious. I, I have, until very recently, thought that about myself. <laughs> um, so what I was struggling with was this idea that I'd be doing this talk about Jesus and his enemies, and we'd get to Luke 6, where Jesus says, love your enemies, 
And I just have to be like, yeah, all you bad people with enemies. See, right? Jesus says you've got to love them. Easy, right? Well, don't worry. I am not going to say that exactly. Uh, or at least I'm not going to be um, quite as sanctimonious and holier than thou. Um, what I've found as I reflect more on enmity itself, trying to understand just who thought of Jesus as an enemy and why, and also about enmity itself, like what does it actually entail, I began to suspect that I might have more to learn from this teaching than I'd first thought. Now I should be upfront, I've had nemeses, right? <laughs> and I can't very well talk about this topic without mentioning my arch nemesis from elementary school, Jonathan Pitlushny. <laughs> He and I were competitors in a number of ways. You knew him, didn't you? I was just thinking, I wonder if Catherine knows Jonathan. Anyways, he and I were competitors in a number of ways. And by competitors, I mean I saw myself as competing with him. I'm pretty sure that he didn't actually know that this was happening and would have thought it was a little bit strange given the dis divergences between us academically. Um, he is an academic, actually, today. Uh, in the States, and it's sort of interesting if you start to look up these old people that you used to go to school with, and you're like, wow, he works for a group called America First. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so it all started with Jonathan the year I submitted something to our school's science fair. I was presenting about allergies, and Jonathan was presenting about global warming. My setup was beautiful, if I don't say so myself, which I'm allowed to do because I didn't make it myself. Thank you, Mom. Um, and back in the late 18, or sorry, 1980s, 1880s, late 1980s in Sherwood Park, we lived just near the vibrant Esso refineries. Jonathan's global warming topic was a bit niche, right, to put it mildly. This was a 1989, probably. Nevertheless, Jonathan got first prize, and I got second. And that was when I stopped being a scientist. So, <laughs> so I have had nemeses. I've had nemeses. But actually, as I think about uh, the rest of my life, I know that there have been times, uh, and there still are many times, when I've felt like someone has been my enemy in some way. Right? I've had people want to do me harm. Right? I've had bad bullies in junior high. I've had really terrible bosses treating me badly. And I have also had people think that I've done them harm, right? And sometimes they've been right. I have hurt people unintentionally and intentionally, right? Sometimes those people have forgiven me uh, or let it go, and sometimes those people have written me angry emails or stopped speaking to me, right? So I suppose in some ways I need to retract what I said to my family. I have had enemies. And the way I deal with this fact personally and I think the reason that I haven't always thought that I had enemies uh, at all is mostly by just pushing the thoughts out of my mind, right? And I realize that actually probably means that I've just lived a fairly privileged existence, right, to be able to do that. But the dynamic of harm, right, doing harm to others, having harm done to us, that lies at the root of enmity. And if you're wondering, how do I make an enemy, that's how it's done, right? It helps if harms are compounded and unaddressed, especially over many years, right? Centuries in some parts of the world, here as well. Of course, harm, right, is something that everyone participates in, whether they realize it or not. The part of the Hippocratic Oath that everybody knows, do no harm, right? Or Google's original motto that they've taken off their mandate, right? 
please don't be evil. Um, they need to be said out loud because they're not just givens, right? They're not just foregone conclusions. We harm and are harmed by one another, so the potential for enmity is always there. When we look at the Gospels, there are a few groups that are described not explicitly, but in ways that we might think of as Jesus' enemies, right? In every case, these are groups that want to do Jesus' harm. Does anybody have any guesses what those groups might be? Pharisees, yeah. Anyone else? Priests. Priests, the chief priests, yeah. Sadducees, they're so sad, you see. The Pharisees, they're no fair, you see. They're not hip with it. Anyways, um, I think that we can bundle these folks into three groups. You've got the cosmic enemies and the religious enemies and the political enemies. The cosmic enemies are the spiritual, demonic, non-human entities that are opposed to Jesus and to his work. The religious enemies, right, a few of us said some of them, right, these are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the Herodians, the Sadducees, other religious affiliated people described in the Gospels as those who are actively wanting to kill Jesus. And then there's the political enemies, right, who the Gospels describe as having a stake in opposing Jesus, that Herod, Pilate, uh, and the Roman Empire is sort of hanging over the whole thing. Interestingly, in all but one of the Gospels, the first enemy that we see Jesus encounter is a cosmic one. So in Mark 1.21, on what is presented as his very first ministry engagement, Jesus casts out an impure spirit. I don't remember who I gave reading one to, but that's it. I don't know if somebody has this one. Yeah, thank you. There's the threat of harm at the heart of this scene, right? The man possessed by an impure spirit knows that this new teaching is going to destroy what has gone before. And as we'll see, this fear is one that most of the potential enemies of Jesus share in common. Just a chapter later, still in Mark, Jesus is faced with a similar incident. And this time it's with some teachers of the law. They're all in a house together. And people are trying to see Jesus and bring people for him to heal. And some folks are trying to get their friend to Jesus. And so they do this sort of wacky thing. They tear apart the roof and lower him down from above. And you just think as you're reading, it's like, do you think that if they'd said to somebody, hey, I got to get this guy through. And they're like, no, 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 we're not going to. And they're like, I'm going to rip your roof apart if you don't let me through. They'd be like, oh, yeah, let's do it. You know, but anyways, they didn't think of that option. Um, so this is, uh, this is in Mark chapter 2. Um, I don't know who I was reading to. Oh, I did. Okay. Oh. <clears throat> when Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic man, 
Jesus is making waves, right? He's disrupting the way everyone thought things were supposed to be. And if we keep moving through the Gospel of Mark, we see a series of these disruptions. He does it again, confusing the Pharisees in the same chapter, verse 16, by eating with sinners. Who does that, right? And then again in verse 24, when he lets his disciples glean heads of grain on the Sabbath. And then at the very beginning of Mark 3, Jesus does something that pushes everyone over the edge. And we're only three chapters in. So this is in Mark chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the evolution of enmity in real time, right? First, there's the fear that what Jesus is teaching is going to destroy the way things are. Second, there's confirmation followed by further confirmation that these fears are true. And finally, they watch as Jesus willfully defies them all. And having set him up as someone to potentially fear, Jesus' opponents confirm their own assumptions. If we fast forward to chapter 11 in Mark, Jesus closes the loop with the teachers of the law who wondered, who is this guy, when he presumed to forgive sins? If they assumed then that he was a blasphemer, what he does in chapter 11 confirms it. This is reading four. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money chargers, changers, and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They feared him. They looked at him and saw a potential blasphemer Jesus blows up the temple, and their assumptions are confirmed. They assume he is their enemy, and they assume they have been proven right. But of course, we all know what assuming does. It's a little joke. Does everybody know what assuming does? It makes, etc. Okay. If you don't know, you can come talk to me afterwards, and I'll tell you what assuming does. Okay. There's something about the way that we're wired. Or maybe it's something about the way we read stories, right? Especially, I'm told, this is in the Western tradition, that predisposes us to see conflict. I found that I was doing this unconsciously even as I was preparing. So this is part of my notes for preparing. They are duck um, sticky notes, um, but anyways. So I did this quick skim through Matthew, Mark, and Luke just to see how enemy talk shows up. And I made notes about it, right? Teachers of the law grumble. Pharisees are confused. Pharisees are mad. Pharisees and Herodians plot against Jesus. Teachers of the law say Jesus is possessed. Chief priests decide to kill Jesus. So you see this like arc of like escalation. 
And I also tried to see how Jesus responds. Okay, here's Jesus on people who will not welcome you. Jesus pronounces woe on unrepentant cities. Jesus warns his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees. Jesus picks a fight. My notes tried to summarize what was going on. But as I looked at them again, I started to wonder if I was reading things that weren't actually there. Take the last one. Jesus picks a fight. That's my paraphrase. The scene is in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 39. Now, the reason I'd said this passage was all about Jesus picking a fight is that this is the passage sometimes summarized as seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You might have heard it, right? So this is the first woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. It seems pretty feisty, right? You know, it's like, yeah, Jesus, you tell them, you know, like in a movie, Jesus would be saying this with fury in his voice and shaking his finger like a righteous prosecutor in a courtroom. You know, you can't handle the truth, right? Even though I think in that movie, that was the bad guy who said that, um, right? But this speech is definitely going to make the trailer. But I think, actually, unfortunately, it may have to come out in the editing room because in the actual Bible, this is how the scene starts. And I'm sorry, we are reading a lot of Bible today. Um, so this is uh, from Matthew 23. I don't know who has this. Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in the golden seat of the kingdom. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves Jesus continues in this vein in order to help his followers understand how they are not supposed to be. This is the same place, this same passage, where he says in verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And from the previous chapter in Matthew, we've been told that the Pharisees, and at least one expert of the law, is in the crowd. They're in the crowd as Jesus says this. And as we continue to listen to Jesus, as they did, we can see that what Jesus was actually doing was not trying to pick a fight or to escalate the conflict. Rather, he was looking to rescue the very men who were seeking to hurt him. You know, nowadays, if we picture Jesus saying these things, we might imagine him shaking with rage, right? We might hear these seven woes as curses or as pronouncements of doom. But Jesus, brilliant as ever, is actually drawing upon scripture here. He's following the woe oracles of prophets seven centuries earlier, Amos, Isaiah, Micah. And the woes that these prophets pronounced were not curses, they were lamentations, right? Jesus is lamenting where these men are leading themselves and others, right? The word woe, which is we in Greek, is a word of grieving. It sounds like a wail. Right? which incidentally is also a word that comes from the same root, woe. Right? Jesus isn't picking a fight. He's grieving. And if we read what he says closely, we can see why. He says to them, How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. He's saying, you'll be condemned. So 
This is what we're going to do. God's going to send you prophets and sages and teachers. God wants to save you. Jesus wants to save them. But some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who, sent, who were sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look. Your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is angry the way that we might be angry when we see a loved one destroying themselves, or the way we're angry at the perpetuation of injustice. But see also how full of love and grief he is towards these very representatives of Jerusalem. When we read the unfolding of Jesus' relationship with his opponents as oppositional, we're privileging one side over the other. We're reading the situation the way they saw it, right? The way the Pharisees saw it, the way the chief priests saw it. But Jesus did not see it that way. He did not approach this in the same way as the Pharisees and others did. The way that we come at the story shapes what we see. The way the Pharisees and teachers of the law and chief priests came at the story shaped what they saw. It shaped what they expected. With Jesus, they should have probably expected the unexpected. You know, how wild would it have been, for instance, when he said this? And this is our last reading. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's one of those passages that doesn't compute, to borrow a phrase. It's upside down, right? It's foolish. It's unsustainable. You know, many people talk about the golden rule as a sign of Jesus' universal wisdom. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But few recall that the foundational underpinning, the logic of that saying, is the radical, seemingly contradictory idea of love your enemies. That's at the base. That's what he builds his argument off of. But Jesus, like, what about the harm? Right? What about the hurt? Right? What about these real things that happened in the world, that have happened to me, that I have done to other people? What about all those things? Right? That's what lies at the root of enmity. But, I mean, of course Jesus knew about harm. Right? That's, that's the end point for him. When all of his would-be enemies converged and got into bed with each other, when the Herodians and the Pharisees decided to work with each other, realizing that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and the teachers of the law and the chief priests and the Roman government, right, they all combined their forces to stop the threat that Jesus posed, the harm that they perceived him to hold in potentiality. In the end, Jesus knew all about harm. We've been looking closely and the stories of Jesus and how he relates to others in order to understand just what it is that we're all looking at in the center of what binds us together, right? We say it's Jesus, but what about Jesus, right? Well, it's his heart of service. More than that, it's his heart for friendship and relationship. 
And then here, at the end, on the cross, beaten and mocked by these men who thought of themselves as his enemies, Jesus reveals something even more shocking about his heart. He really meant what he said. See how he lets the logic of his teaching play itself out in the midst of this life-ending harm that has been committed against him. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The corresponding passage to Luke 6 that appears in Matthew puts it as, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And read without any context, we might wonder what that entails, okay? Like uh, pray for good things to befall them, or I don't know, pray that the persecution stops. Jesus offers an alternative approach. <coughs> Appeal on their behalf to God. Remind God how broken they are. It's an awful scene to read, right? Jesus prays this beautiful prayer of mercy, and the people just sneer and mock. The verse right after this is, and they divided up his clothes, right? Like, they just, it, it doesn't land, right? Right? Does it do anything? Like, was it worth it? So there's a scene in Monty Python's very irreverent and not at all pure flicks movie, Life of Brian, where it imagines people in the crowd listening to Jesus. But instead of hanging on his every word, they're all situated just a bit too far away to be able to hear what he's saying. I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, this is not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturer of dairy products. <laughs> Ruth had a helpful reminder for us a few weeks ago that we're following Jesus, not the other way around. Right? Jesus isn't our co-pilot. He's the center we're looking towards. And Jay's reminder for us is that the center of our centered set theology is meant to be the thing that's drawing us to it. But let's all admit that we aren't in the center. Right? Jesus is still ahead of us. We're still in the crowd. We're still trying to figure out what he's saying. Did he really say cheesemakers? Right? <laughs> And we're all at different points, right? We all have different capacities. We all have different experiences, different responses, different privileges, right? The thing that we have in common is that we all feel the pull of this center. We're all somehow, in some way, captivated by this person, by a person who would say, surrounded, to tho surrounded by those who are about to kill him in the face of death itself, Father, forgive them. We behold in wonder the one who loved his enemies to the end. It's impossible, right? It's, it's impossible, this thing. But as we keep Jesus steady in our sights as a community, wondering at this impossible event, right? Could it become possible, right? Maybe it could do something real in the world, right? Could, could we bear the hurt for one another? Could we help one another to avoid hurting others? Could we teach one another to love better, to, to be a little bit more like Jesus? It's maybe a bit unsatisfying, right, just to end with a bunch of questions, but I actually think that's the gift of keeping Jesus at the center as the goal and end of all our journeys, right? The questions move us forwards. So let's pray.
Father God, thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for this, uh, this person who did such impossible things um, that we are chastened by and inspired by and uh, angry about and hopeful about. Um, I just ask, Lord, that in your mercy you would just keep our eyes focused on him, especially when it's hard. And when we can't, Lord, help us to do it for one another. Um, help us to, to bear the load together uh, as we move towards... Um, towards your son. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name.